The Holy Face Who Conquer Communism by David Rodriguez, a conference from Fatima by the Time is Now, given in Raleigh, North Carolina, on February 9th, 2023. There are many connections between the message of Fatima when Our Lady warned of the errors of Russia and devotion to the Holy Face, which Our Lord promised will defeat revolutionary men. Let us use all the spiritual weapons which God, in His wisdom and grace, has deigned to grant us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. May the most holy, most sacred, most adorable, most mysterious and unutterable name of God be praised, blessed, loved, adored, and glorified in heaven, on earth, and in the hells by all God's creatures and by the sacred heart of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the most holy sacrament of the altar. Amen. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. I'd like to start out with a vision, an image for you to picture in your mind. This does come from private revelation, but I think it's a powerful message that speaks to us well. This comes from Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich, October 22nd, 1822. She told us in a mystical vision she saw, Very bad times will come when the non-Catholics will lead many people astray. A great confusion will result. I saw the battle also. The enemies were far more numerous, but the small army of the faithful cut down whole rows of enemy soldiers. During the battle, the Blessed Virgin stood on a hill, wearing a suit of armor. It was a terrible war. At the end, only a few fighters for the just cause survived. But the victory was theirs. Most likely, this is a prophecy referring to what in other prophecies has been known as the birch tree battle. It is in numerous Catholic prophecies that you will discover, so it comes from many sources. It's believed that it will be fought in Westphalia, an area today in Germany, very likely under a royal leader who will become a great emperor of the West, a future Catholic monarch, if you're familiar with that prophecy, who will work hand in hand with a future great Catholic Pope, who might also be the ones that are in charge of a great Catholic council that will even outshine the Council of Trent in glory. And those are things to come. It does appear that these kinds of prophecies pertain to the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary and a period of peace which will ensue thereafter, which we know will happen since she's promised that at Fatima. And there's a wonderful image, I think, just of Our Lady dressed in battle array, as the scriptures tell us, sort of guiding these armies. It'll happen under her, her hand, her grace, that she will be directly involved in this way. I mention this today, and I start out with this image, for a number of reasons. One, I think people just kind of sense that we're getting closer and closer to these kinds of things. Things are really sort of spiraling out of control Certainly within the church, but within the world, geopolitical economics, wars are looming. We know things are not getting better. 
And that does cause some people concern. It does seem like these things will happen. I mean, Catholics have been in wars before. Battle of Lepanto comes to mind as one of the great victories. The Battle of Vienna, the Battle of Malta, where they have been far outnumbered and by the grace of God and the intercession of our Blessed Mother have triumphed. So it shouldn't surprise us that this may happen again. But sometimes we do forget, I think, that we're in a battle. And the battle is certainly twofold. The most important, and I do believe we need to focus on that most, is certainly the spiritual battle. And not just the everyday spiritual battle that we are all engaged in, certainly, but even a spiritual battle on sort of like the global scale. Just like we think in terms of international geopolitics, we've got to think big in terms of the church. There is a battle for souls. In some ways, you could say, metaphorically speaking, we're in a battle for the soul of the church, that enemies within the church are trying to destroy her very foundations. I was actually giving a talk yesterday up in Fredericksburg, Virginia, where I was joined by Michael Hitchborn of Lepanto Institute. Great talks he gave. And I won't steal his thunder because he gave some insights that I wasn't familiar with. But catch that when these come out on Adam Center's website because they'll help round out this message. I can only give a small portion today. And today what I'd like to focus on is, in fact, this spiritual battle, which will also, I think, carry over, like many things, body and soul go together. So there will also be physical, let's say, material elements to this battle. It won't be just a spiritual battle. It is a spiritual battle. That's where it's ultimately fought because it's against principalities and powers. But it's also going to come out in concrete ways, the ways men fight wars here on this earth. That's also headed our way. We have to take up our weapons. And many Catholics are unfamiliar with some of their weapons. Hopefully everybody is familiar with the brown scapular, which is a great shield that Our Lady gives us to always wear on your person and to live according to the guidelines, to make sure you're invested in the brown scapular and that you live according to that. Our Lady promises that those who are faithful to that, she will not let them fall into the fires of hell. So that's a great shield. And then, as many of always say, we have our rosary, which you know, we just prayed right now. So really, the most important part of this evening has already taken place. Thank you for praying. But that really is. That's our spiritual sword that we wield as well. And again, many people who are familiar with the message of Fatima are familiar with these two. We can even go back to St. Dominic, who gave us a prophecy that one day Our Lady would conquer these many evils with the rosary and the scapular. But in these times, and specific to some of the things that have happened, Our Lady, of course, has come again at Fatima to remind us of these things. But also we have a very powerful devotion and very powerful weapons in the Holy Face devotion. And what I have found is that many Catholics do not know that much about the Holy Face devotion and some of the promises associated with it and how powerful it is. So that's really what this talk is going to be about, to encourage you to learn more about the Holy Face devotion, to get involved and to pray those prayers, and to include this in your, if you will, spiritual arsenal. Very powerful weapons with some great promises. Again, I will not be able to cover everything, so avail yourself of other resources. Some of the ones that I will recommend just at the start, this is a book that the Fatima Centers put out some time ago, The Revelations of the Holy Face by our late dear friend, John Benari. May God rest his soul. This is a great book. encourage you to get it. We have copies back there with our other Fatima Center resources. You can always contact us. Another one is this little one, which I was happily surprised when I got here to see that you have it back there. So that's fantastic. The Manual of the Arch Confraternity of the Holy Face. And it's filled with wonderful prayers and meditations and gives a much better explanation, really, than anything I could do in the brief time that we have. 
So this is a great book. Carry it with you. Prayers out of here. And then another wonderful resource written by Father Carney is The Secret of the Holy Face. So here's another book that I would encourage you to get. I was actually blessed with the opportunity recently to interview Father Carney with about five short 15-minute interviews where we gave a basic introduction to the Holy Face. So those are already online or on our website. You could go already and check those out. I'm not going to repeat here what he and I talked about, try to discuss other things, because there is so much more. Another reason I wanted to give this talk is because one of the things I found, and I find it a little troubling sometimes among Catholics, is that they get, let's say, don't want to use too many pejorative words here, but let's say, for lack of a better word right now, they get fixated on this or that devotion or this or that particular revelation. Uh, even among people who love Our Lady of Fatima, obviously I'm incredibly devoted to her, but I'll still find people who sort of say, well, that's not part of Our Lady of Fatima's message. So, like, I don't want to hear about it. Or that's not, like, what I'm following. And I really do have to sort of scratch my head when I say that, because I say, ultimately, the real question here that we should be asking ourselves about some of these things is, well, does it come from God? If it's coming from God, then he is the source of all truth and all goodness. And God's given it to us. There's a reason. And God is not going to waste his time, right? So if God has given us these powerful weapons, why would we not take advantage of them? You know, if we have church-approved Marian, for example, Our Lady of Guadalupe, or Our Lady of Good Success, or Our Lady of Lourdes, all these Marian apparitions, or even, you know, the dreams of St. John Bosco, or the revelations of the Holy Face. God has given us these things, and they're true and they're authentic, then we do well to take into consideration what God has done. You know, when I hear people talk that way, I can't help but think, it almost sounds like a Protestant strain to me. Or even a Gnostic, if you know the early heretics in the first centuries of the church, one of the things that they would do is they would take the scriptures, you know, some of the Gnostics, for example, only wanted to follow St. Paul. So they would say, well, I like the Gospel of St. Luke, and that's legitimate, and I like Acts, and maybe some of Paul's letters, and they would kind of create their own scriptures and forget Matthew, Mark, John. Even in our Lord's time, right, there are those Sadducees who only accept the five first books of the Bible, the Torah, and they don't accept anything else. And so you have to sort of say, well, that, that's not our place. If God gave us Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then we do well to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So similar, I think, with some of these private revelations and devotions that are very important. If they are authentic and they do come from our Lord, then we do well to pay attention to them. And what's really great is when you delve into them, and again, I'm talking about the authentic ones, because there's plenty of inauthentic ones running around as well. And stay away from those. Uh, because if they're not from our Lord, really they can only come from men, who are all fallible and sinful, or obviously from the devil and from the evil one. And both of those are places we should stay away from. So that always is something you sort of have to discern. That's why we have that gift of discernment that is ultimately held by the church. But these are all very helpful, and what you notice as you start digging into them is how interconnected they are, how they sort of mutually support one another, how they strengthen one another, how they're all interconnected. And again, it makes sense, because if God is infinite and almighty, we humans could never comprehend everything about God, right? So we have to get a little bit here, and we see sort of one aspect of the mystery, but then we see another aspect of his mystery here. That's why, for example, meditating on the mysteries of the rosary never ends, because they're the mysteries of the rosary. You can spend your entire life meditating on them, and there's still so much more, right? The gospel passage are the same way. And with these revelations also, they're highlighting, emphasizing certain maybe specific aspects of the faith, very often some that have been neglected, maybe some that are under attack, maybe some that God is giving a special grace or a special power for this particular time. 
And so we might need it more now than we did at other times. For example, we have a famous quote from Sister Lucia who will tell us that God has given a special efficacy to the rosary in these times. And that there is no problem, no matter how great, whether it be within our families, in our own personal lives, or even on the level of, you know, the world, you know, the geopolitical situation, great wars, that the rosary cannot overcome if we pray faithfully. And from the way she talks, it certainly sounds like God has given a greater efficacy to the rosary in these particular times than in other times. One might ask why. There, we could speculate. I'll give you my own theory. And this is, again, just my theory, my personal private theory, based on, you know, reasons. But I think part of it is because we do have to brace ourselves that there may come a time, again, Catholic prophecies tell us that the Mass will be lost. The public Mass will be gone. Now, we'll still be able to, I think, find private Masses underground, hidden, in secret, in the catacombs, if you will. That's happened before. For those of Mexican heritage like myself, we know about that in the time of the Cristeros, but we've seen it in Ireland with the Mass Rocks. We've seen it in England under Elizabeth. Penal laws, we've seen it in Russia. We've seen it in China. We see it under Islamic law. So that could certainly happen on a global scale. It could be coming soon near you. Even given some of the things that are taking place within the very church herself today, as I mentioned, people are trying to destroy the church. As you know, all these documents are coming out that are trying to sort of shut down the traditional Latin Mass, the Mass of our ancestors, the Mass of all ages. And that's certainly very, very problematic, especially now that it's coming from within the church, not just from you know an external power like the state or a heretical monarch. But they can never take away the rosary from you, even if they imprison you and put you in jail. They can't take the rosary from you. So that's one of the reasons why I really think that the rosary has so much more power today in these times, because God wants to make sure that we do still have the means of salvation. Well, the holy face devotion that we'll talk about today is another one of these that they will not be able to take away from us. And so we want to foster it. It has a lot of grace, and it gives us another insight into the mysteries of God. So the first thing is, a little bit about the holy face. People sometimes think that because they haven't heard of it, that let's say it's a quote-unquote more new devotion. It is not. It's not a new devotion, just like with the rosary. I know some people will tell us that the rosary in its full form, that we sort of have it today, was revealed by our Blessed Mother through St. Dominic. Then, of course, it got lost for a while, and it came back with Blessed Alan de la Roche. But honestly, even before St. Dominic, the rosary was around. And if you really think about the rosary, where does it come from? Well, it certainly has connections to the Psalms. And then we have the angel Gabriel coming and giving the first part to our Blessed Mother uh, directly from heaven. So God giving us this part to his angel. And then we have the other part with the Holy Ghost inspiring Elizabeth as Our Lady goes to greet her. And then, of course, we have the other part of the Holy Ghost inspiring the church at the Great Council of Ephesus in 431 with the latter part that we pray. So, I mean, really, the Hail Mary has been there from the beginning. The Our Father, Jesus taught us that prayer. The glory be. Well, the angels have been glorifying the triune God in the beginning now and will do so forever. And the mysteries upon which we meditate on, well, they're from the life of Christ and his mother. So they too are as ancient as the Catholic faith. Meditation and oral prayer, that's been around as long as men have existed. Marian devotion, it's always been part of the Catholic faith. All of the apostles had a very strong Marian devotion. And if you really study the mystics, 
you'll learn that even the angels needed a devotion to their queen. Our Lady and devotion to her clearly shine out in the pages of the Old Testament. So the upshot of all this is that the rosary, in all its basic elements, it's been there from the beginning of the faith. It's always been there. In a more codified form, you know, its specific structure with the great 15 mysteries and all that, yes, Our Lady did obviously reveal it to St. Dominic, but don't think it was just revealed sort of like new in the 1200s with St. Dominic. It precedes even that. Similarly, with the Holy Face, it's always been there. And when I say it's always been there, I mean always been there. So how far can we go back? Well, how about if we go back to Adam in paradise? Right? That's where it starts. Because Adam gets to walk with God and gets to speak with God face to face. And this is the best he can get on this earth. This is paradise. Before the fall, he sees him. In fact, we know what happens after the fall. He has to hide himself from God. He can no longer see God's face. And God has to cast him out of paradise and put the cherubim guarding with fiery sword. And so the man is now not able to see God face to face. But if you read the Old Testament, the Psalms, but other parts, there is this great, great longing to always see God's face. In Catholic theology, you're probably very familiar with it. You know the beatific vision. I mean, this is what heaven is. To be able to behold God, and in our very limited human language, we say face to face. This beatific vision. That's ultimately what our destiny is. So this is how old and how primordial and how fundamental this devotion is of the holy face. You have great men like Henoch, if you're familiar with him. Genesis 5.22 is a reference of how he also got to walk with God because he was a just man. And if you're not familiar with Enoch, the church fathers talk greatly about it when you read the book of the Apocalypse, which I'm talking about in Charlotte in a couple of days. Uh, there are two great figures in the book of the Apocalypse that will come back chapter 11 in the book of the Apocalypse, two witnesses that come back. The church fathers tell us it's Enoch and Elias, the two men who did not suffer death. But every man must suffer death. They did not suffer death. God has put them somewhere we know not where. Some people speculate, maybe in the Garden of Eden, maybe in some kind of like limbo type place. No one really knows. That's not been revealed to us. But they're going to come back. They're going to come back in the time of Antichrist and they will do battle with Antichrist and then Antichrist will slay them. There by the great city where our Lord was slain. That's Jerusalem. Again, all this is in the book of the Apocalypse, chapter 11. And then they will rise. There'll be a resurrection. And that's one of the things that's going to convert so many people at that time. Okay, so we've got this great figure, Enoch, who gets to see God face to face. Moses, we're familiar with him. He goes and begins to speak to God face to face. And he comes back and his face is glowing and he's got the horns of wisdom. And the people are like, you know, they're so scared by him that he has to veil himself because he has seen the glory of God as he converses with them. One great, great passage, look at it, is Numbers chapter 10. In particular, verse 35. So verse 35 is a wonderful prayer. It's, Arise, O Lord, and let thy enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thy face. So again, a very specific reference here to the battle. And if you read Numbers 10, what it all is about is the battle formation that God is giving the Israelites. It's how they are supposed to march. And it goes through and explains, and as you read it, keep an eye open for what really are liturgical overtones. Okay, the mass is battle, because ultimately it's battle with the devil. It's Christ on Calvary, how he conquers evil. 
And when we're at mass, I mean, we should also be in a kind of battle formation. You should be thinking about this is spiritual warfare. So all of numbers, I mean, you'll see they're all in hierarchical order. There is holocaust and offerings, so you're immediately thinking about sacrifice. There's a very special and specific place for the priests and what they need to be doing. There's the trumpets that are blowing, which is always very liturgical, very apocalyptic also, very battle-oriented. So all of numbers, chapter 10, has got that context. And one of the nice things is right before 1035, it says, and when the ark was lifted up, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let thy enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thy face. So I know in this crowd, when we talk about the ark of the covenant, everyone knows who the ark really is. Right? That is Catholic Old Testament code for the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Holy Mother of God. And so you have, again, here, that's why I started with that image. Right, We have our Blessed Mother sort of being raised up, the ark being raised up, and now the enemies will flee before God's face. This is the power of this holy face devotion. So again, we're going all the way back to Numbers. Psalm 67, again, that same verse that we read in Numbers 10.35 is essentially repeated in Psalm 67, verse 2. But read Psalm 67, you will see again, very liturgical, warfare, enemies being defeated, and you'll see a lot of prefigurements of our Blessed Mother. References to the widow, the poor, the rain that comes down, which is again, scripturally speaking about Our Lady, God in his dwelling place, which of course is the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary for so long. God speaking about his beloved, which is obviously the mystical bride of Christ's church, but also very specifically his mother. For the Holy Ghost, his spouse, for the father, his chosen daughter. So if you read Psalm 67 with a very sort of Catholic eye, you will see warfare again. You will see liturgy again. You will see defeat of God's enemies. You will see the Blessed Mother. These are themes that are going to keep going over and over, and they're all connected with the Holy Face as well. So for those who love Our Lady's message of Fatima, this already should sort of really link you in. There's obviously much more. In a very real way, mankind now finally gets to see the face of our Lord there at Bethlehem. That's the first time we see the incarnate God taking on flesh, being born of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Ghost. And now, obviously, Our Lady sees him. St. Joseph will see him. The shepherds will come. All the angels are adoring him. The Magi will come representing the Gentiles. And now man gets to see God in Christ. And for us, we still remain have that privilege because we see him in the Blessed Sacrament. So again, there's going to be a deep connection between the devotions of the Holy Face and the Blessed Sacrament. Deep connection between the Holy Face and the Holy Name of God and also the Sacred Heart of God. Because all of these things are ways that God is manifesting himself to us, making himself sort of more sensible to our senses, to the way we can relate to him. The Sacred Heart is very connected to the Holy Eucharist, the Holy Face very connected to the Holy Name, the Sacred Heart sort of manifesting more his love for us, which we see through the Holy Eucharist, but also the Holy Name representing his honor and his glory. So if you just think about it again in very human terms, because God speaks to us in this language that we'll understand, how do you feel? How does a person look? You know, what starts taking place in their face when everybody starts talking bad about them? You know, if you start hearing that somebody is talking bad about your wife, your children, your father, your mother, about you, there is immediately a, a kind of sadness, a kind of anger, a kind of frown. I mean, you see it reflected in our faces when people begin to speak this way. Basically, when our honor is being attacked, 
tarnished, destroyed, we're being calumniated, we're being betrayed, all these kinds of things that are done against my honor, your honor, when you talk about that and you hear about that, it shows on your face. Just like when someone praises you and gives you honor. You know, I was very blessed today. We were at a restaurant and two of my daughters were doing a lot of work for this conference, in fact, and were organizing things. This group of elderly people that were there had been watching us. And they came up and they had the nicest words to say. So, you know, we never see young ladies dressed this way. They look so industrious. They look like they're really working hard. This is fantastic. You must be homeschoolers. <laughs> it was around 9.30 in the morning, so maybe that was part of the clue. But, I mean, those are great words, right? And as a father, I didn't have a mirror in front of me, but I knew I was beaming. You know, I mean, I've got this smile that's like from one ear to the other ear. I'm very grateful. And, of course, I've got to text my wife and tell her, hey, you know, these people are just telling us all these wonderful things about the kids. It wasn't even about really us. It's about them, but it reflects on us. And so that gets reflected in our face, right? If someone is praising you or your loved ones, it's reflected in your face. So our face really shows forth either our honor or our dishonor, right? And that's true of our incarnate God because he took on flesh and has a human face and a human nature and everything that goes with that. And this is why that devotion to the holy face is really so important because he is being so dishonored, so blasphemed by so many that we want to do reparation against those enemies of Christ and the church and we want to give him honor. So that that sadness and anger and, and, you know, just being so displeased with the things that are being said against the king of kings, we can turn that around. And you see that too. I mean, a man who's been dishonored, but then his friends come along and they honor him and they tell him all of the good things about him. Yes, he might have been disappointed or angered, but then he can still lighten up. That's a very human side of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he became incarnate because he wanted us to know that. That's the love of his sacred heart. And then his face is so great and so powerful and it is his honor that, that it will win. It will win battles and it will make the enemies flee before him, especially the devils. I mean, the devils cannot handle his face at all. They have to cower from that and run from his holy face. This is a poor and imperfect analogy, but I do think it helps bring it home. For us parents, we know that so often all you have to do is give your child that look, the parent look. As soon as the child sees it, they know they need to behave. Stop whatever wrong thing they're doing. And it's just a look from the parent's face. Sometimes I have to give them that look, for example, we're at mass, right? Completely quiet. You don't make any noise, but you just give them that look and they know. And we all know this. When we think about the look that those in authority over us might give us, be it a policeman, a priest, or imagine a king or a bishop, you get that look from one of them and it's like, you want to hide. You want to flee. Imagine now, we're talking about God Almighty, the supreme Lord and creator of all the universe who maintains all things in existence. You only exist because he allows it. Yes, his look alone will terrify the devils and all his enemies. That's what Our Lady's look. That actually happened at Lourdes. One look from Our Lady and the demons causing disturbance in the river Gav fled and ceased their turmoil instantly. So, so we want to be close to the holy face, and we want to be very devoted, and we want to undo these great sacrileges and outrages. Restore the honor due to his name, and we want to call forth the power of his almighty gaze 
to defeat his enemies. So in a nutshell, hopefully that gives you a, a good understanding of the Holy Face devotion, rooting it especially in the scriptures and in just sort of like human anthropology. The fact that we are made in the image and likeness of God and that God is becoming incarnate. Nevertheless, as human beings, we don't always get it. And so God makes it even more clear for us. And so in the middle of the 1800s, he did appear to a Carmelite sister. named is Sister Marie de Saint-Pierre. She was a French Carmelite living from 1816 to 1848. So pretty young life, you know, just past 30 years old. And there's a lot of links between her and the message of Fatima. Just to name a few. Just like Our Lady showed the three children a vision of hell with many souls falling into hell. So too Our Lord showed her a vision of hell to Sister Maria St. Pierre and many souls falling into hell. This devotion was given to appease the sacred heart of our Lord and to bring him that comfort that the blasphemers are taking away. But hopefully you know that the sacred heart and the immaculate heart can never be divided. In fact, in this devotion, in some of the revelations he gives to Sister Maria of St. Pierre, he tells her that. Don't ever separate the sacred heart and the immaculate heart. St. Louis de Montfort will talk about that. St. Peter uh, Julian Amard and St. John Eudes, all great apostles of the Holy Eucharist, or the Sacred Heart and the Immaculate Heart, talk about that. Mystically, these two hearts are one. And so when you honor the Immaculate Heart, you're also honoring the Sacred Heart. And in fact, if you recall, from the devotions of Fatima, our Lord said that, there's that one time in the 1930s, when Sister Lucia was talking to our Lord and said, why won't you convert that poor nation, i.e. Russia, without this consecration? And our Lord said, because I want the whole world to acknowledge this as a triumph of the Immaculate Heart. So that my church will place devotion to her Immaculate Heart alongside my Sacred Heart. So there we see it from our Lord's own words, how closely united these two hearts are, and how He desires them to be so united in the heart of each one of His disciples. So never forget that. I mean, that's ultimately what Fatima is about, is devotion to the Immaculate Heart. Well, that means also devotion to the Sacred Heart. Also means Holy Face, Holy Name, right? All these are connected. But he's not going to allow Russia to be converted, and that's going to happen after the consecration, except to show it as the great triumph of the Immaculate Heart. So for us, very hard-headed people, thick-headed people, doubtful people, there's going to have to be a very strong link between the consecration and this great conversion of Russia. It's going to have to be temporally linked, and it's going to have to be quick, and it's going to have to be miraculous. It can't be that the consecration is done and five or ten years later, Russia gets converted. Because then we humans are going to say, well, that was just natural causes, economic causes. We'll come up with all kinds of reasons on why it wasn't ultimately attributed to the Immaculate Heart. But the only reason God is doing all of this is because he wants devotion to the Immaculate Heart to be placed throughout the church and all over the world alongside with devotion to the Sacred Heart within the church. Okay, so that's the ultimate goal of this message of Fatima. To have everybody devoted to the Immaculate Heart in this peaceful period that the church triumphs and the Immaculate Heart of Mary is triumphing. So we're still awaiting the consecration. I mean, that's another subject which we could discuss, which we could talk about in the Q&A period if you'd like. But we're going to see great miracles that are going to open our eyes to that. And they have to be quick and sudden because that's how God works. God works in these very powerful, miraculous ways. And he works quickly. It's not like it takes him tens or hundreds or thousands of years when he wants to accomplish something. When his mighty right hand will bring something about, he works miracles and they happen quickly. Powerfully, decisively. That's just a telltale mark that it is God at work. He created the world in six days, very quickly. He spoke 
and creation came into being. What do the atheists like to tell us? Oh no, it was billions of years and evolution, and that's an error straight from the pit of hell, and from Darwin, and from Karl Marx, and those are ultimately errors of Russia. You take a poll of young people today, and I mean by young, maybe I should be including myself, 40s, 50s, those are young still, okay, so young people. Um, when you interview them, or you poll them on why they left the Catholic faith, the number one answer, the most popular answer is because of evolution. Because they were taught evolution, they were taught that evolution was true, and evolution brings about this atheistic system. In fact, when the communists in China were, were taking over, they didn't indoctrinate people in you know, Marxist ideology or in socialist economics. They got them all together in the little town square, the peasants, and they taught them evolution. And they taught them basically man has no soul, that's how he can be a cog in the machine. They taught him that there is no God, there is no eternity, there's no afterlife, there's no heaven, there's no hell. I mean, ultimately, that means there's no morality. There's no heaven and hell. Why be moral? Just live for today. And if I'm a cog in a machine and I have no soul, you can treat me however you want to treat me. Treat me like a, you know, like a rock or a tree or a pencil or something to throw away. And that's what the communist system does. And that's ultimately what the devil wants. But the intellectual opening up of that is this false theory of evolution, which doesn't come in until after communism is starting to grow. It is one of the great errors of Russia. So all of this is, as I was saying, connected it's interconnected. The Immaculate Heart of Mary has to defeat all of this. But one of the great weapons, once again, is this devotion that we receive through Sister Maria St. Pierre. Other connections. Our Lord specifically says this devotion will defeat revolutionary men. And it will defeat communists. So our Lord said that. Again, these revelations are coming in the 1840s. When does Karl Marx write his manifesto? 1848. So even before, you know, communism is sort of really gaining ground and the errors of Russia include communism, they're more. You know, atheism at its root, they're more. But even before this is sort of gaining ground, already our Lord is appearing here and telling Sister Maria St. Pierre, here is the weapon that you will use that is destined to defeat communism. It's ultimately his holy face. And it's ultimately the instruments of his passion which are all connected with the devotion to the Holy Face. Again, that's how he has defeated the devil, by the instruments of his passion. We have the Church Fathers and other saints telling us that we'll see those instruments at the end of time, when the angels will bring them in, when our Lord comes again in glory. So, those are very powerful, and that's connected to it. Uh, she was a Carmelite, just like Sister Lucia was a Carmelite. She was a victim soul, like Jacinta, Saint Jacinta, Lucia, Francisco were victim souls had to get approved through her superiors, but with difficulty and many obstacles that the devil put into place. I'm talking here about both Sister Lucia and the Message of Fatima and Sister Maria St. Pierre, uh, and both sort of think that there is a kind of critical mass of Catholics that are needed, of faithful followers that are practicing these things before the floodgates of grace will be released by God for the defeat of these enemies, these revolutionary men. And again, the errors of Russia, I mean, they go back to, we can go back to even the Protestant Revolution. I've given other talks where we link it to how Protestantism grew and then Freemasonry was pushing a lot of different things and the French Revolution and just the whole revolutionary movement kept growing and escalating. Uh, and it's like the devil keeps sort of increasing his attack and the revolution keeps growing. And so God is sort of countering by increasing the weapons and the power that he is entrusting to us. And I would argue that one of the things that took place was that in the 1840s, he gave this devotion of the Holy Face, 
which at that time could have just defeated communism and put an end to it. But it, it sort of didn't catch on, and Catholics really didn't pick it up. There were some, and some arch confraternities got started. You had some great men like Leo Dupont, Venerable Leo Dupont, the Holy Man of Tours. Also, St. Therese of Lisieux. Everyone knows the little flower. She is St. Therese of the Child Jesus and the Holy Face. So she and her family were enrolled in the arch confraternity of the Holy Face. And they helped promote it. Pope Pius IX, great saintly pope. Leo XIII, another great saintly pope, both helped promote this arch confraternity. So they were trying to promote that Holy Face devotion. But it doesn't seem like it caught on enough. Not enough Catholics did it. And so the revolution continued to grow. And we had World War I, which was ultimately revolutionary forces, trying to destroy the old order of things and wipe off the last vestiges of Christendom so that all Catholic monarchs would be eliminated, so that the church would be really destroyed and divested of all its temporal authority. World War I really is a cataclysmic event that changes this whole world in a way that we haven't gone back. And that's, of course, when Our Lady of Fatima comes to promise us that there will be this period of peace, but we have to turn back. And if we don't, there's going to be worse wars. And so we saw World War II. And if we don't, there'll still be more worse wars coming, an annihilation of nations. So it's almost like we didn't listen. And so then God says, okay, here are these weapons that you could have used, but you haven't used them rightly. And because of that, the communists and the revolutionary men and the forces of evil have grown stronger. So I'm going to give even other weapons now. Use those too. And so Our Lady's coming. And she's saying, now you've got the last. This is the last option. We have no more options left after Fatima. Because as she says, only she can help us now. It is the Immaculate Heart of Mary that is our last recourse. And God will offer no other recourses because it is the greatest thing he's ever created, that Immaculate Heart of Our Lady. Uh, it's what he loves the most. If you put everything that God's created on one side of the balance, all the angels, you and I, every saint, everything, and you put our Blessed Mother on there, when he has greater love for the beauty and the love that he has for his mother. It just, that's how it is. And it's wonderful. Praise God for that. Uh, but that's why the Immaculate Heart of Mary is the only thing at this point that can appease this divine justice of God. And again, Fatima is all about making reparation to all the offenses against the Immaculate of Mary and against Our Lady, against the doctrines about her perpetual virginity, that she's the mother of God, even the fact that they blaspheme her images, that they teach children to blaspheme her. Right? That's what the first Saturday devotion is all about. So a huge component of reparation to the Immaculate Heart, just like the Holy Face has reparation to God's honor and to the holy name of our Lord. So again, all of these connections, hopefully you see that if you are devoted to Our Lady and you are devoted to the message of Fatima, as I hope you all are, and you know that she is the only solution, you'll also realize that the Holy Face is a very powerful component of that. And one, we should talk more about that. And that's why John Venari put this little booklet together. So get it. It's in there also. Read through it. It's a simple book. It's been around for five, six, seven years. Continue to pass it out. Yeah, there's a lot to say about this Holy Face devotion so I will try to just give you a few of the very well-known and powerful quotes. These quotes are our Lord giving them to Sister Marie de Saint-Pierre. He told her, The earth is covered with crimes. The violation of the first three commandments of God has irritated my father. The holy name of God blasphemed, and the holy day of the Lord profaned, fills up the measures of iniquities. These sins have risen unto the throne of God and provoked his wrath which will soon burst forth if his justice is not appeased. At no time have these crimes reached such a pitch. That's said on November 24th, 1843. He goes on to say, The Jews crucified me on a Friday, but Christians crucify me on a Sunday. So, Christians guilty of this as well. So, 
This devotion, again, is for primarily these great outrages against God, which are the violations of the first, second, and third commandments. And unfortunately, among many Catholics, they're still not taking this sufficiently seriously. I'm here to remind you, violations of the first three commandments are far worse than violations of commandments of 4 through 10. Now, we can have mortal sins on all of those. It's not to say that violations of 4 through 10 are not bad. They are terrible. But 1 through 3 are far worse and require more reparation and bring more of God's divine wrath upon the world, and justly so. So we have a lot more work to do, and we personally have to really avoid those sins. I mean, it's heinous now if you're aware that even sins against the first commandment are being violated within St. Peter's Basilica. They're having idol worship. We had that at the Assisi things back in 1986. We've seen it again, but it's reached a sort of fever pitch now, and I suspect it's getting worse. I've heard some priests talk, and, and I believe this, that it's almost like we have enthroned, not really, I really shouldn't say we, because as laity, we don't have the authority to enthrone anyone there in St. Peter's, but rather members of the church hierarchy who do have the responsibility to care for the purity of the faith and worship and do have the authority to enthrone Christ as king or someone else. So as you know, they brought in this Pachamama, which is an idol, and all the idols are demons. This is a devil. The devil's brought into St. Peter's Basilica and reverence and put there. It's, it's enthroning Satan in St. Peter's Basilica. I mean, this is the point where we're at. That's the violation of the First Commandment. It is more heinous what took place there than the golden calf incident. We know what happened because of the golden calf. What's going on now is worse, and we're not opening our eyes to this. We need to. And believe me, it's going to get worse it's not going to stop or go away, but rather it is going to escalate. We had shaman activity in Canada by the hierarchy. I know of a priest who was just consecrated bishop, and they brought in indigenous rituals to supposedly bless him as he was being made a bishop. Everyone now feels that they can improvise the liturgy, bring in any pagan rituals they want into the sanctuary. And now they're even talking about creating some new Mayan rite of the Mass. It's not out yet, but the few things I have heard about it are absolutely horrendous. To Catholics, we have to wake up, open our eyes, and stop being blind. Even taking the Lord's name in vain, far worse. Again, what would parents think if, for example, they found out that their son went out and murdered some innocent people? I think all of us would be like, that's terrible. Like, how can my son be doing this? Or if we found out that they were embezzling all kinds of monies and impoverishing people and ripping away all of their finances. Those are terrible sins, and people are doing those. But then they hear that their child didn't go to Mass on Sunday, didn't keep the Lord's Day holy, or profaned our Lord's name, and they seem to shrug it off. And I'm here to tell you that those sins are worse. We don't understand this, but those sins are worse because they are offending God's glory and God's honor, and you don't take my word for it. That's why they're the first three commandments. And every time our Lord comes, like with this devotion, He's telling us those are worse. I still remember, I was a uh, director of religious education, you know, in lay ministry, before I even learned about the Latin Mass at this one parish. And I was trying to remind the people how important it was to go to Mass on Sunday. And I reminded them that if they don't go to Mass on Sunday, intentionally so, they just decide whatever, to sleep in, or they're lazy, or they want to watch a Super Bowl game, whatever it might be, that's a mortal sin. And then the people who are getting the children ready for confirmation, one of the mothers, she says, that's crazy, that's not a mortal sin, what are you talking about? And you scratch your head, like, this is where people think. It's like, no, this is, and this is again a more heinous mortal sin. 
So we've really lost that sense of the sacred, the reverence due to God, His honor, and how His glory is far more important than anything about us. That we are created, we exist to worship God. That is why man exists. Do we know this? Do we believe this? Do we live this way? Right? That's why you exist. And so it makes sense that our Lord is saying that we crucify Him again on a Sunday. But we've got to keep our Lord's day holy. We're not supposed to do extra work that is not necessary, manual labor that's not necessary. We're not supposed to be shopping on a Sunday. Oh, I mean, you know, if there's essentials and you need to get them and you have a baby and it needs milk or something like that, I mean, God understands and the church understands that. So this is not like some iron inflexible rule and we're not going to be pharisaical like people were in the days of the Old Testament. That's not what this is about. But do your best to keep that day holy. Make it holy. Make it special. It's very important. And we can't use our Lord's name in vain. So a lot of Catholics are still doing these things. Erase that from your own life. It is terrible. And we have to actually offer reparation to the holy face of our Lord for the sins that others are committing along these lines. It's beautiful that this was given on the Feast of St. John, another Carmelite, a mystic, connected in geography to near where Fatima is and where Sister Lucia lived. So I see that. This important concept of cease offending God, which is really Our Lady of Fatima's main message, is here. That the chastisement is imminent. That is also part of Fatima. Our Lady of La Salette reminds us here very much of these sins. That's why she came. That's why she's holding God's arm away, saying, I'm trying to hold his wrath and his justice away, but it is so difficult. Um, Our Lady of La Salette is very linked with Our Lady of Fatima. Again, Our Lady continues to give us this same message. And even if you think about it, I mean, Lucifer, what was his first sin? His first sin ultimately is a violation here of God's honor, of God's dignity. He wanted to appropriate for himself that which was properly God's. That is why he falls, because he will not serve his creator. He will not serve God Almighty. And then he becomes a liar and a murderer. But the first sin is to go against God's honor. Adam, the same thing. And the first sin is to go against God's honor because he disobeys the divine command given him by God, the supreme authority. Cain and Abel, same thing, right? We all know Cain kills Abel. But before we have the first fratricide, what did Cain do? Well, he was giving God false worship, incorrect worship. And Abel and Cain are both offering sacrifice and Abel's is acceptable to God because he offers the right worship that God has requested. Abel is offering true sacrifice. Cain is not. Cain is refusing to offer real sacrifice. So what we could say is that Cain is still worshiping God, but he's doing it the wrong way. And so God doesn't accept his sacrifice. And that is then a violation of the first commandments, the first three commandments, not keeping God's day holy, not honoring him the way he needs to be honored. Why Cain's heart gets corrupted and ultimately leads to this great envy by which he goes and kills his brother. And we have this first fratricide. But always it's the violation of the first three. So again, all the way back to the Old Testament, we can see these things. Our Lady of La Salette, very important, because she's talking about the priesthood and how there are no priests left that are worthy to offer the sacrifice of her son. These violations of the first three commandments, she talks also about the problems within the church and how Rome will even become a seat of the Antichrist. Very mysterious phrase, very mysterious prophecy, but I think we have new insight into what that could mean in these days. 
Not even that the full prophecy is being fulfilled in our days. It might still be fulfilled more fully in times to come. But it is connected with these sins. When these sins begin to take place, these first three commandments are being violated, then the priesthood begins to be corrupted. Because God is withdrawing His grace. Then we have problems in the church. Then we have problems in the papacy. And then, of course, we're going to have all kinds of problems with commandments 4 through 10. It's going to follow, just like with Lucifer and with Adam and with Cain. We see that. Human nature is not changing. Sin's not changing. We still need the grace. Our Lord continued. I'm sorry, this is what Sister Marie St. Pierre says. He opened his heart to me. My name is everywhere blasphemed. Even children blaspheme. This frightful sin more than any other wounds his divine heart. By blasphemy, the sinner curses him to his face, attacks him openly, annuls redemption, and pronounces his own condemnation and judgment. Blasphemy is a poisoned arrow ever wounding his divine heart. So he told me that he wishes to give me a golden arrow wherewith to wound his heart delightfully and heal these wounds inflicted by sinner's malice. So that's why we pray the prayer of the golden arrow at the beginning. Memorize that prayer. Offer it frequently throughout the day. You know, if you're ever, God forbid, watching a movie and they use God's name in vain, offer the golden arrow in prayer. I mean, probably better just to stop it and get rid of that. Why are you bringing that into your house and allowing that to be repeated? And don't allow your children to hear that. And if you do, you've got to stop it. And the whole family should be making reparation. Say the golden arrow prayer. I mean, you've pressed play on that. You've allowed that to come in. And now it's your responsibility to do reparation. Are we doing this? Are we allowing those things into our own homes, into our own ears? We cannot do this. We must offer this reparation. Interesting that this was on August 25th. 1843, which is the Feast of St. Louis, the greatest Catholic king we probably ever had, a king who enacted some very serious laws and penalties for those who blasphemed, even to the point of branding a person's tongue. St. Louis said that he'd rather have his own mouth be burned than allow such an outrage in his kingdom. (laughs) Now there's a Catholic, a real Catholic ruler. So yes, very fitting that these revelations were given on his feast day. Uh, that connects us to all kinds of things with the Sacred Heart. I think you all are familiar with France, how it was supposed to be consecrated to the Sacred Heart. Sister Mary Margaret Alacoque and her visions, and how our Lord said that he needed to be done in 1689, and the French kings didn't do it. They were supposed to put the Sacred Heart on their weapons, on their arms. They were supposed to have a special mass to honor, and Francis was supposed to be consecrated to the Sacred Heart and emblazoned on the flag. And then he was going to give the king great honor. And France would have been this great Catholic nation that would have sort of come over the whole world. Falses might have overtaken the world then, but the kings didn't listen. And so a hundred years later, to the day, the French Revolution broke out. And these devils were let loose from hell, which, which still haven't been put back in the Pandora's box. They've only gotten stronger, right? And the French king lost his head, and the French haven't had their king since. And the church has suffered much in France. And that diabolical revolution has spread throughout all of Europe, and that leads to communism. So we see a connection because our Lord says to Sister Lucia that he's hoping that the church authorities don't delay like the king of France delayed. So the king of France, great Catholic nation, supposed to consecrate his nation to the sacred heart. Now the ante's being up because the devil has increased everything. So now it's the Pope who's greater than the king of France. Well, he needs to get together with the bishops and he needs to consecrate Russia, this great atheistic nation, larger and more powerful now than France ever was. And that has to be consecrated to the Immaculate Heart. There's all these parallels. And yet we're nearing a hundred years of disobedience. I don't know if that means something. I'm not a prophet. But it might be aware of that. Noah had a hundred years to build the ark. And then the flood came. 
king of France had 100 years to consecrate France to the Sacred Heart. Didn't do it. June 13th, 1929. That's when our Lord appeared and said, now is the time to consecrate Russia. We are fast approaching. We're about six years away from a 100-year deadline on that one. I don't know what's going to happen then, but we need to make reparation. And the more reparation, we need to do a lot to, to try to get the graces we need. The revolution has intensified, has not abated, and so God has given us more weapons. None remain at this point, as I said. She continues, Sister Maria St. Pierre, the Sacred Heart is the sensible object offered to our adoration to represent His boundless love in the sacrament of the altar. So Sacred Heart and the Holy Eucharist, very connected. Likewise, in the work of reparation, which is what is a name for all this reparation that's being done to the Holy Face with the various prayers she has, likewise, in the work of reparation, our Lord's face is the sensible object offered to the adoration of the associates to atone for those outrages of the blasphemies who attack the divinity, of which it is the figure, the mirror, and the expression. Uh, Really running out of time, so much of this, again, is in these books, so I'll let you read them. What I'd like to just talk a little bit about, because I find this so fascinating, is the holy face and where we get it, this particular devotion, that is the work of reparation, because the holy face of our Lord, obviously, as we've said, it's, it's always been there since the times of the Old Testament, since the time of Adam. At Bethlehem, we've said that. And even today, we do have three holy images of the holy face that are all really of supernatural origin. But this particular devotion, the work of reparation, goes back to what is the holy face on the veil of Veronica. There's another holy face that's obviously in the Shroud of Turin that many of you might be familiar with. And there's another holy face we see in what's called the handkerchief of, it's like Montepello, I'm not pronouncing it correctly. But anyway, we think that that's from the resurrection, really. The Shroud of Turin is really from his death. And then the veil of Veronica is obviously from his passion. It's on the way of the cross as he goes up. So there's a very particular connection between this holy image off the veil of Veronica to his passion. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One of the reasons is because the mystical body of Christ, that's the church, has to go through the same thing that Christ goes through. And so, since Christ suffered his passion, and he tells the apostles, right, no disciple is greater than the master. If the master went through this, expect to go through the same. So, the church is going to undergo a passion as well. And it is my firm conviction that we are in the midst of that passion right now. And so we're suffering through a passion. That's what the church is suffering. There's obviously the betrayal that's part of the passion by Judas. We're suffering a great betrayal by those who are in the hierarchy, who have not consecrated Russia as they should, who have not revealed the third secret as they should, who have not obeyed Our Lady as they should, who have tried to alter dogma and worship to give us a false worship, not the true worship that goes to God, not the truth, but allowed errors, who have not fought off the heresies that they should have fought. There's a lot that's involved in the passion as our Lord's face begins to be marred, as it's spat upon, as it's mocked. We know that Psalm says he was so disfigured, it's like you could hardly even see him as a man. We read that on Good Friday. People look at the church and wonder how this could be anything that has to come from God. I mean, they see the scandal that is marred. I mean, I sometimes marvel that some people still are trying to enter the Catholic faith because I think if I wasn't a Catholic myself and I saw what was going on in the church right now, I don't know how I would... I mean, God's grace is all-powerful. Blessed be God. But humanly speaking, I don't see how anyone would want to come to the church right now. It's so disfigured and marred by heinous sins. I mean, 
violations of the Sixth Commandment and the Seventh Commandment, the kinds of financial malfeasance that's going on. You know, Michael Hitchman was talking about that, the kinds of sexual aberrations that are going on and being promoted. I mean, it, it's, it's very terrible what's happening right now. We are in a passion. So we're going to suffer that. And that's why we need the weapons of the passion and we need to do this work of reparation. And so what does Veronica do? You know, St. Veronica is wonderful because there, just, just picture our Lord going up Calvary. He's bleeding. He is so beaten. Uh, you have uh, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin who are yelling at the crowd, inciting the crowd. You have children throwing rocks at him. You have people throwing you know, fruit and eggs, whatever it is, to mock him. Again, the children learning to blaspheme. You have the Roman soldiers in the cohort. I mean, talk about a massive mob. And Veronica, like, rushes through all of that. She, she breaks through the mob. That is an amazing courage. I mean, we think about just what we've suffered now with, uh, with vaccines and masks and people telling us you can't come in here and the crowd yelling and you just kind of want to just stay away from it. And, you know, I mean, imagine rushing through the mob and breaking it apart and saying, no, no, this is truth here. And she takes her veil and she wipes our Lord's face with it. She gives him that sign of charity. And that's what our Lord said with his devotion. He says, I seek Veronica's. So anytime you practice this devotion, you are being like a Veronica and breaking through the crowd of blasphemers and communists and revolutionary men and all those that are betraying our Lord and you're wiping his face and bringing him consolation and bringing great honor to his father. So he wants Veronica's and that's what St. Veronica does in that moment. And that's what our Lord desires. Some of the church fathers actually say, fascinatingly enough, that Veronica was the woman who had the blood flow that touched the hem of our Lord and got cured. So that's a very interesting connection also. The precious blood of our Lord that heals her of her wound. And then she shows her gratitude by returning this great kindness coupled with amazing courage when she fights through the crowds. And of course, from the gospel, we know that the woman with the hemorrhage was healed on account of her faith. Because everybody was touching and jostling our Lord in the crowd, but only she was healed. Remember, he felt the power go out of him. It is on account of her faith. And so we see this great link in how her faith lead her to this great act of courage and compassion. That's what faith should do in us. It's a great model for us. Faith bears great fruit. But there's more. Because at that time, Caesar Augustus was ill. He had leprosy. And he had heard that there was this great miracle worker out in one of the recesses of his kingdom, over there in what we, of course, know as the Holy Land. And so he sends some of his representatives to try to bring Jesus to Rome. But by the time that happens, Jesus has already been crucified. You know, of course, there's all that talk about resurrection, and, you know, the Jews are getting all upset. Well, they're able to track down Veronica with this holy icon that she has of the veil, and Veronica is willing to go back to Rome with Caesar's representatives, carrying, of course, her veil, this great relic, the holy face of our Lord. And as soon as... Caesar Augustus touches the veil, he is healed of his sickness. So that's a great miracle right there. Now Veronica's in Rome. And he actually wanted to build, Caesar Augustus, a statue of Jesus and put it with the pantheon with the other gods. Which, of course, God doesn't allow because you can't put Jesus with all these other pagan gods. But that's how much he wanted to do it. Uh, the Senate didn't let him. Now Veronica's there. It is said that Veronica accompanied Peter and Paul at their times of their martyrdoms as well. And that when she dies, she entrusts this veil, a very holy relic, already recognizes such to St. Clement, who knew St. Peter and is obviously the third pope. So now the veil is in Rome. The veil then is taken very special care of within the catacombs, and it's hidden in the catacombs. 
until Pope Sylvester comes along. Pope St. Sylvester is the Pope at the time of Emperor Constantine. And we all know Constantine's conversion story. His mother, of course, is St. Helena, who finds the true cross. That's the great instrument of the Passion. And then, of course, her son Constantine saw the cross in the sky and heard those words, read those words, in hoc signo vincis, in this sign you will conquer. He obeyed that prophecy and became ruler of the Roman Empire. And then, of course, banned the persecution of Christians with his Edict of Milan in 313 AD. St. Sylvester becomes Pope and he brings the veil back out for public veneration. And even Constantine gets to venerate it. And so the veil is brought out to show that Christ's enemies have been defeated now. The period of martyrdoms is over. And now they have this great triumph of Christ, witnessed by the whole world. His church, his Catholic faith, have triumphed over these powers of evil, of paganism, ushering in really a new civilization. And then, a little while later, around 608 AD, it's Pope Boniface who follows Pope Gregory the Great. So this is now when we have Pope Gregory the Great helping us codify the Latin Mass and establish everything that's been there from St. Peter and the right worship, Gregorian chant, all those wonderful things that St. Gregory did. He actually wipes out the last vestiges of paganism within Italy. And that's important to note, because we could say that Gregory the Great marks the triumph of Christ over paganism. It's like a mopping up operation, but you see the same theme here. Christ triumphing over his enemies. There is no more paganism now in the lands that had once been the territory of the great Roman Empire in Italy. And so as if to commemorate this great victory, the next Pope, Boniface, comes and says, let's transfer the Holy Veil and many other relics to what was Rome's pantheon. So the pantheon in Rome was this temple that was built to all the gods. The Romans were pagans, they would conquer foreign lands, adopt the gods of those peoples and bring them into their, you know, multi-ecumenical worship where all the gods were worshipped and the pantheon was the temple that hallowed that. And so with Christ conquering paganism, to mark and show that triumph, the pantheon is converted into a Catholic church dedicated to Holy Mary and all the martyrs. And you can still see this church today. It's one of the great tourist spots in Rome because the facade still looks very much like a Greek temple. I mean, you can tell that it was the Pantheon. And so with great pomp and ceremony, Pope Boniface transfers the Holy Veil, and as I said, many other relics, and they're put there to show that now Christ has triumphed over all the pagan gods of Rome. So in that sense, you know, this statue that Caesar Augustus is going to put, well, no, now Christ triumphed and he did it his way. But what's fascinating is, do you know what day they transferred the Veil of Veronica into this Basilica of Mary of the Martyrs? Won't surprise you now. May 13th. And then that became an annual celebration. So every May 13th in the ancient times, the feast day of the dedication of this church, the Holy Veil was brought out and people would go and venerate it and recall Christ's great triumph over his enemies, over the forces of paganism. Or we could even say over the forces of atheism and the errors of Russia. Now, interestingly, today, the Veil of Veronica is only brought out once during the year, and it's on Passiontide Sunday. And I haven't yet figured out when exactly that change took place, but that's why I emphasize that in antiquity, the date for this was May 13th. May 13th. So if you wonder, why did Our Lady appear on May 13th? Yeah, that's Fatima. Well, I'm sure God has many reasons, a lot of which we're not privy to, but I can certainly discern two major ones. One, it's because on May 5th in 1917, the Pope, 
that time Benedict XV wrote a letter because he couldn't bring peace to Europe. And so he writes a letter to Our Lady and calls her the Queen of Peace and adds that title to the Litany of Loretto and asks her for peace. And he does that on May 5th. And he has this letter read in all the churches in Rome. So within a week, Our Lady answers. And she appears in Portugal promising peace to the world and an end to World War I. But why did she appear that particular day? I think it's May 13th because that's always been the feast of the Veil of Veronica. It's to remind us there is this weapon that my son has already given you. It's his passion. You need to use these tools to defeat communists. These are the errors of Russia that are spreading. You need to use this weapon as well. So May 13th immediately links us. In fact, May 13th is the day that the Veil of Veronica was always brought out and venerated by the people of Rome. Finally, in 1625, Urban VIII transferred the veil back to St. Peter's. If you ever visit St. Peter's, you will see a great statue of Veronica. I have been there many times, and I see that statue of Veronica, and I never really realized why they had the statue of Veronica there, because there's like four giant statues up by the altar, and Veronica's one of them with her veil. Because behind that, there's one of the great pillars that holds up the dome, the great dome of St. Peter. And within that pillar is where they have the Veil of Veronica housed, along with the spear of St. Longinus and a relic of the True Cross. So there's a little door. You can get back in there. You can go up. And just above where the statue of Veronica is is where those are housed. And interestingly enough, through that same passageway, you can go down into the scavi into the catacombs of St. Peter's, where St. Peter's buried. Uh, so you, again, you have the passion of the church linked there with the Holy Altar, with St. Peter, the power of the papacy. Hopefully you're seeing all these things connecting us with Fatima as well. So that's where it is today. Interestingly enough, in 1848, in November 24th, again, November 24th, right? So this is the day that a year earlier, our Lord was giving that revelation to Sister Maria St. Pierre. The revolution, 1848 is known as the revolution in Europe. Every major capital is having a revolution. I mean, Austria, Berlin, Paris, are all having revolutions. And Rome was not immune to it. I mean, at that time, the Pope is still the temporal authority. Uh, the secretary, his, um, his prime minister of the Papal States, was assassinated. This cardinal was assassinated in cold blood right in the streets of Rome. And they came after Pope Pius IX. Pope Pius IX had to escape. Interestingly enough, you probably know Pope Pius IX as sort of like this really staunch conservative who really defended the faith. Well, when he was elected, he wasn't seen that way. He was actually seen as a liberal who was going to bring in much change and, and bring in sort of the liberal ideals of the French Revolution into the Papal States. And he leaned a little bit that way. And it seems that because of this revolution, where his life was threatened and he had to flee out of Rome, that he sort of had a change of heart. Not to mention the fact that Our Lady appeared at La Salette and gave a very important revelation there. And so, you know, Pius IX starts having a conversion. So we can still pray that popes have conversions. That does happen, that they can sort of turn around. Anyway, so Pius IX has to flee, and while he's out of Rome, he gives orders, and he says, bring out the veil of Veronica, bring out the spear of Longinus, bring out the relic of the true cross, and let the people of Rome venerate these holy icons. Really, all Christian societies should be doing this, because remember, one of the special graces that God has imparted to the instruments of his passion is the defeat of his enemies, those who oppose God's right order, the enemies of the church. Because remember, there's this great revolution going on all over Europe that is overturning Christendom, overturning all of God's right order, destroying Christian civilization. And so after three days of the Holy Veil being exposed there in St. Peter's on the altar for public veneration, on January 6th, Feast of the Epiphany, so right after the Holy Name, Feast of the Holy Name, they put it out for three days by order of the Pope, and on Jan 6th, the Feast of the Epiphany, the veil began to glow 
and began to have all these changes in appearance. And it was the talk of Rome for weeks. Cardinals came, I mean, everyone saw it. They saw these great miracles. And of course, the revolution abated and the Pope was able to come back. It is good to repeat that. The Pope was able to come back. For Pius IX, it was coming back physically to Rome, to a seat of authority. But don't we also, all of us today, long for the Pope to come back? To return to being, to acting, speaking, and governing like the Vicar of Christ? To use a metaphor, to sit upon the chair of Peter as he ought to. And again, in this example from Pope Pius IX's life, you see a lot of the motifs and the ideas that are surrounding this devotion. The enemies of the church, you see the diabolical revolution, and you see the power in this holy face that we see in the veil of Veronica. And so just before he declares the dogma of the Immaculate Conception in 1854, which I believe is connected to La Salette, I believe that's one of the things that Our Lady said at La Salette, that she wanted this dogma proclaimed of the Immaculate Conception. But note, I do say it's just my opinion, because with La Salette there were secrets, and some people say that we got everything Melanie and Maximin have said, uh, but that was really not even until the 2000s, and some people suspect that maybe we didn't get it all. So that's one of those unsolved questions that we don't really know. So again, this is my own uh, kind of reading into history. But we could then say that Pius IX obeys, the Pope obeys what Our Lady asks. Again, he had public veneration for the Vale of Veronica, which was sort of triumphed by his bull on December 8th. And of course, that paves the way for Our Lady to appear at Lourdes to confirm what the Pope has said in gratitude to him obeying and calling herself the Immaculate Conception, right? I am the Immaculata. And so that's like this greatest Marian of revelations that we have up to that time, the greatest Marian apparitions, which then paves the way for what? For devotion to the Immaculate Heart, right? So you've got to have that dogma defined. Then Mary comes and says, I'm the Immaculate One, and then she gives us and reveals on June 13th, 1917, her Immaculate Heart to the world. Like, these are the weapons God's giving us to defeat the revolution, but they're all connected in this wondrous way that only God can do. There's more with Our Lady of Revelation when she appears in Rome to the Freemason Bruno Cornacciola, who had vowed to assassinate Pius XII. And so he has this great conversion there at Trefontaine, which is where St. Paul was martyred. So back to a place St. Veronica visited. He even engraved on the dagger that he was going to kill the Pope with this. So he has a big conversion. Our Lady appears to him. Her prophecies, Our Lady of Revelation, very connected with Fatima. Don't have time to go into them now, but you can look into that. The reason I bring this up is because it's shortly after he goes and talks to Pius XII that Pius XII declares the dogma of the Assumption, 1950. Another great Marian triumph that we needed. And Pius XII himself says that during this time, he witnesses a miracle of the sun in Rome you're aware of that testimony. So Pius XII says a small sort of miracle of the sun was repeated for me day after day as I walked around the Vatican Gardens right before August 15th when I was going to declare the Assumption. Why he didn't follow through and consecrate Russia is a great mystery to me. I mean, he talked about himself as being the Pope of Fatima. He's consecrated a bishop when Our Lady of Fatima is appearing. I mean, there's a lot of things there and that's, again, maybe another subject for speculation. But still, there are these powerful connections Connections that we do well to take note of. It's like a great golden thread of truth and grace running through all these divine interventions which our Lord and Our Lady are making into our history, our lives, so as to bring about the salvation of souls. Um, we are. We are going through the Passion right now. Our Lord said he needed Veronica. He's given great promises. I had hoped to get to them, but I won't. Read through the nine promises. 
great saints like St. Gertrude and St. Mechtilde, who Our Lady appeared to and got great revelations of Our Lord and Our Lady back in the Middle Ages. Great saints. I mean, they started this devotion. The first two promises are to them. But these are nine wonderful promises for anyone who practices and promotes devotion to the Holy Face. It is very much needed. We need a crusade today. Uh, you know, St. Bernard was the one who preached a crusade. And Our Lord talks to St. Marie St. Pierre and says, we need another St. Bernard. Only now it's not a crusade to go and free the Holy Land from the infidels and the Muslims, but it's a crusade for God's holy name and his honor from the revolutionary men. Although, again, Our Lady Fatima has promised world peace. There's no way we're going to have a period of peace if the Mohammedans are still a strong force as they are right now. So there's prophecies connected with how they are going to be converted en masse under this triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Um, Yes, lots of connections here. Hopefully you've seen sort of, let's say, God's great wisdom. We didn't listen sufficiently in the 1800s. We still need to listen now. God has given us more firepower with Fatima, with the rosary, with the brown scapular, but practice the holy face devotion. So learn the golden arrow prayer. Pray those. The Fatima Center right now, we've got these videos. We're putting out booklets. Uh, You can get those. You can get these. Please do learn that. Um, The war is coming. In many ways, the war is here. It's all part of God's plan. We know the outcome. The good Catholics do win, but we need our weapons. Above all, we need the Sacred Heart, the Immaculate Heart, the Rosary, the Scapular, and the Holy Face is our banner. Um, I have more to go in with Old Testament prophecies. You'll see that time and time again. Great. Read it. Um, King Josephat in 2, Paralipomenon, or also known as like 2 Chronicles, chapter 20. He goes into battle. I was going to read it. Don't have time, but he prays to God. The Holy Name is there. And in the end, it's fantastic because they're completely outnumbered. But when they go to the battle, all the enemies fall upon themselves and they all kill each other. And like King Jehoshaphat gets it, was one of the good kings. He's like, okay, the victory's won. And they just go and pick up all the spoils from God's enemies. Like that's the kind of work God can do. We just got to trust him. We got to believe. We got to have faith. Those are the kinds of miracles Our Lady will work. I could see it happening now. The enemies fighting amongst themselves and then the Catholics being the victorious ones and just going picking up the spoils. If we let God fight, if we let Our Lady fight, that's what happens. Our job again is to pray, to sing his praises. So that's the message of scripture and that's the message ultimately I try to bring you today to share with you. Let's close with a Hail Mary. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray for us. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. This presentation has been brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2023, all rights reserved. For more resources regarding the Catholic faith and the message of Fatima, and to support this vital apostolate with a donation, please visit our website, fatima.org, or call us at 1-800-263-8160. All need to hear the message Our Lady brought the world at Fatima, and we must all faithfully observe it. So for the glory of God, the honor of Our Lady, and salvation of many souls, please share the Fatima message with everyone you know, and may Our Lady reward you. Our Lady of the Rosary, pray for us.